And tonight I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to a psalm, Psalm 135. Psalm 135 tonight. I want to spend a few minutes with you considering some characteristics of our Lord, particularly in a season like this. I think it's important to be reminded of the character of our our God. So we're going to dive into this tonight. I want to read down through the 21 verses of the text and then work back through these verses and we've got several character traits. I think there, I've, I've listed here eight of them. We're not going to teach long on any of them, but just point them out from the text to you tonight to hopefully instruct and to guide our thinking as we come to prayer in just a little while. So Psalm 135, beginning at verse 1, let me read down through verse 21. The psalmist writes this, Praise the Lord! Praise the name of the Lord! Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from the storehouses. He it is who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and against all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage a heritage to his people, Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion. He who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord, I don't know about you, but I often find this to be true, that when, when winds blow and when fears rise and when troubles begin to mount in the heart, praise is hard to come by. Praise is not so quickly on the lips as it is when things seem to be going well. There doesn't seem to be much trouble before us when there seems to be everything at hand that we need. But when trials come, the praise of God is often absent from the lips of his struggling people. I want you to notice the fact, though, friends, that this entire psalm is a psalm of praise 
to the Lord. Notice the, the reasons that the psalmist gives for praising the Lord. Obviously, he's talking about trouble and enemies and idolatry, and he's addressing a lot of situations here. Even, even the captivity that his people went through in Egypt, all are found in this text. But the whole psalm is a psalm of praise. And I want you to notice the reasons that the, that the psalmist gives for praising the Lord. I, I mentioned to you I've got eight of them. I'm going to go through them quickly tonight. The first thing I want you to see is that the Lord is the source of all that is good. The Lord is the source of all that's good. Uh, look back at verse 3 where we read this. Praise the Lord for the Lord is good. You know, this is where I think people falter in their praise. Because in their hearts and in their minds, too many of God's professing people do not really believe that God is good when they see things in their life they view as bad. Life gets hard. God can't be good. I have things that I didn't ask for. God can't be loving. Because after all, a loving God would give me what I want, right? Just like children often would say of a parent, if you really loved me, you would give me what I've asked for. That's how the reasoning tends to go. If I don't have what I desire, then the one who gives the gifts can't be good. Most are very quick to pay lip service to this doctrine that all that comes from God is good. It's what He ordains, and therefore the good one gives good gifts, that every gift that comes from above is good and perfect from the hand of Him who gives it. We would give service, lip service, to this doctrine, but it seems that far fewer in our day seem to actually believe that this is true, regardless of how the circumstances of their lives may change. God is always good. And everything he does is good when considered from his perspective. The problem is we often fixate on the fact that we expect God to see it from our perspective. And he knows what we go through. He knows what we wrestle with. He is sympathetic like a father to his children. But a father to his children knows when to say no and allow the young ones to go through hard things that they might be made more what they ought to be. So the Lord is the source of all good. This is the first reason the psalmist gives for praising Him. But the second thing he tells us is that the Lord is sovereign. He's sovereign in the choice of His people in particular. Uh, look again at verse 4. What did he say there? For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel, as His own possession. Elsewhere, the scriptures say, God looked out at all the nations and all the peoples of the earth, but He chose you, Israel. You're His special possession. He had every prerogative to do with the people He had made as He willed to do, and He did so. And He chose Israel. He chose them as His own. You see, God's sovereignty over His choice of His people is always intended by the scripture writers to produce some, some joy and, and some gratitude and some confidence and some praise in the hearts and the minds of the readers. Whether you're reading in the Old Testament or the New, when you read of the choice of God, His choice of His own, the goal of the writers is always to produce joy and gratitude and confidence in the hearts of those who have been chosen by God. Again and again, the scriptures remind God's people that the, the God who chose them will not forsake them. 
Because he has selected them, he will remain faithful to his purpose for them. He chose them for a reason, and he will not let that reason not come to fruition. He will bring it to fruition in his good and perfect time. And this really is the thrust of what the psalmist communicates here. God's sovereign choice of Israel is an assurance of God's faithfulness to Israel. If God chose you, he will keep you. He will not lose you. He will not fail you. When we read of God's choice of his people, the intent is to communicate clearly that which should produce a confidence, a joy, a gratitude in our hearts. And friends, those assurances are most certainly cause for praise to rise in the hearts and, the, uh, and then come to the lips of God's chosen ones. We need to ask ourselves the question, when life's not going as we want, does that even enter our minds? Because we want to think, well, I wouldn't have chosen this. But the one who chose me has chosen this for me. Am I willing to submit my will to his? And to rejoice in the will of my father. The Lord is the source of all that's good. The psalmist tells us that the Lord is sovereign over the choice of his people. Thirdly, we read that the, the Lord is supreme. He reigns supreme above every other so-called God. He has no rivals, as it were. In, in verse 5, it says it this way, For I know that the Lord is great and that, the Lord, uh, the, and that our Lord is above all gods. Our Lord is above all gods. Notice the the little g on that word. No capital here. Brothers and sisters, as I've already stated, our God has no rivals. It's not as if God and Satan are locked in some cosmic battle and we're not quite sure who's going to win. He is not in a cosmic competition with other divine beings who have the the kind of strength and the kind of power and the kind of authority that's necessary to undermine or to even overthrow his eternal plans or purposes. No, we find even in a book like the book of Job where God looks at Satan and says, if you considered my servant Job, that, that Satan was not much more than a dog on a leash. And at every time God gave him more access to Job's life, he simply gave him a little more leash. But hear me, he never took the leash off Satan. He always had him under control. When you and I sit back and we think that somehow there's this cosmic competition going on that God might lose, we actually think with blasphemous thoughts. For our God has no rivals. None. No, he and Satan are not equals who who win when they happen to have a better day than the other one. Our God has never lost a battle. Our God has never had a single plan of his thwarted. Don't miss the way that the psalmist drives this point home even further. When he he writes just a little later in the passage, we see it down in verse 15 and following. He describes it this way. The idols of the nations are are silver and gold, the the work of human hands. These so-called gods, little g, they've been crafted by man. They're they're, they're the imaginations of man. They, They have mouths, but they can't speak. 
They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they can't hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. They don't breathe. They're not alive. There's nothing to them. In fact, he says, those who make them. Think about that. I made my gods, now I bow to my gods. Elsewhere, the scripture describes it. A man who takes a piece of wood that won't rot, and he carves for himself a god, and he overlays it with gold, and he, and he, and he fastens it down with nails so it won't fall over, and then he bows down, and he, he, he actually uh, cooks his meal with the same what he made his idol from, and then he bows down before it and offers things to it. Can we use the word that I think all of us will probably think, that's just stupid. And that's exactly what the psalmist is saying. Those who make them become like them. Lifeless. Dumb. Mute. And ultimately dead. This is what he's saying. There are no other gods. Oh, we may fault someone who bows before a golden idol in some far off country. But how many of us bow before the car in our driveway? Or the amount in our bank account? Or the wonders of our our intellect? We found our own idols. In fact, Calvin used to refer to the heart of man as an idol factory. We know how to churn out idols at every turn. And what does he say? You make idols, you become like them. There's nothing to them. They're not living. They're not alive. They can't breathe. They can't think. They can't hear. They can't speak. And the one who bows before them will be destroyed in his idolatry. Clearly, the gods to whom the heathen pray are no gods at all. This is why we say our God has no rivals. Friends, the Lord is the source of all good. He is the sovereign in the, he is sovereign in the choice of His people. He reigns supreme above every other so-called God. The fourth thing we see here is that the Lord is self-sufficient and self-governing. Hear those words again, chosen intentionally. Self-sufficient and self-governing. Look at verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Whatever He pleases, He does. And not just in one sphere or hemisphere or, 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 or realm. No, He does what He pleases in heaven and on earth. In the seas and in all deeps, there is no cave you can climb into where God is not doing His will. There is no ship you can take and and journey you can take across the seas where you'll find a place where God is not doing His will, that the waves are rebelling against the sovereign. There is no, 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 no journey you can take into the skies. There is nowhere you can go, not the heavens above, not the earth beneath, where you will find a place where the sovereign is not saying, this is mine and I do my will. And yet, We tend to think of our own homes as our own castles. We do what we please. Our money is our own. We do with it what we want. Our time is our own possession, our own own life. And so I'll do with my time what I want to do with my time. Hear me, hear me. You're not the sovereign. Nor am I. 
And we find here plainly the reality that our God does whatever he pleases. This reality speaks for itself, doesn't it? It is unmistakably plain. His power is not limited so that he is unable to perform that which is perfect, which is perfect wisdom decrees. No, he does what he wills. He thinks, he plans, and he does. This reality should breathe confidence into the minds and the hearts of those who truly know this God of the Bible. Because, friends, how many dreams of yours and mine have died over the years? How many things have I wanted to achieve that I've never even come close to reaching? How many people have I wanted to see converted that are still lost? How, how, how many things have I wanted to, to do? How many things have I wanted to own? How many places have I wanted to go and see? And I may never in this lifetime achieve what I want. Ever. But our God has never been disappointed. Had a single plan or will of his disappointed. Not one. And I have to ask. When God does his will and that will conflicts with yours. Are you angry? Are you disappointed? Do you become disbelieving? Or do you worship? Do you stand in awe of the one who does exactly as he pleases every time and no one tells him no? Does that make you worship? Does that make you bitter? That the sovereign does as the sovereign wills. The Lord is the source of all that is good. The Lord is sovereign over the choice of his people. The Lord reigns supreme over every other so-called God. The Lord is self-sufficient and self-governing. Fifthly, the Lord superintends over the winds and the weather. I mean, even the winds and the weather are his. Look at verse 7. What's he say? He it is who makes the clouds rise at the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the winds from his storehouses. I remember being in Sunday evening service a number of years ago. This was back when I was in college. And I remember when the deacons began to rush around in the back of the church and go find a family and have to give them some news. And we heard the outburst of the wife as she started to sob. And they pulled them to the back of the service to let them know that while they were there, having come early for choir practice and then now to, to, to be in the evening service, that for the second time, and I think it was four years, their home was struck by lightning and burned to the ground in the middle of a church service both times. They were gathered to worship with God's people and their home burned to the ground because of lightning. Is that a freak accident? Is that some people who just got really unlucky? Or does God send the lightning? Does God send the winds that, that billow the waves, that that come over the edge of the landing and the jetty at a place and, and, and flood a town. Is 
See, somehow it seems as if we think there, there are some realms where, where it's like an oops, God didn't really see that one coming. Oops, he didn't realize the storm was going to be quite that strong. Oops, that lightning struck where it shouldn't have struck. I got a question. Is that the God you serve? He just picks up pieces after the storm blows through, or do you serve the God who sends the storm? And who picks the target for every piece of hail? Every lightning bolt, every cloud that rises, every wind gust that blows comes from the storehouses and is governed by the will of your God. A God who does not make mistakes. The psalmist is praising God because he was confident that nothing not even the wind or the weather was outside the bounds of the sovereign's control. May I remind you of the disciples' response as they feared for their lives in a boat? As they come to Jesus and they ask him, Won't you, don't you care that we're perishing? And he simply has to speak. I, I don't anticipate him having to raise his voice over the storm. I think he just spoke because he is the sovereign. Peace. Be quiet. Be still. And wind obeyed. Waves sat down. Storms dissipated. And the response of the disciples was, Who is this? Even winds and waves obey him. Is that your God? Or was he looking the other way when your life took a hard left turn recently? I'm asking, do we know the God of the Bible? And do we trust him? Don't miss the fact that our God does not simply control or directs the winds that blow. Rather, our God makes the clouds rise, it says. He makes the lightning flash. He brings the wind out of its storehouses. He doesn't simply react to it. He makes it. And this reality, my friends, should change the way that you and I think and the way that we trust and the way that we pray in times when we're in the midst of trials. Because we have to understand that it's not as if God simply has grace to, to help you pick up the pieces because he wasn't really able to stop the storm had he wanted to. No. He sent the storm. And he has grace for you in the midst of it and on the other side of it. This wasn't an accident. There aren't accidents. The Lord is the source of all good. 
The Lord is sovereign over the choice of his people. The Lord reigns supreme about, uh, 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 above every so-called God. The Lord is self-sufficient and self-governing. Uh, the Lord superintends over the wind and the weather. Number six, the Lord strikes down nations. He sets up kings and he situates his people as he pleases. Just think about this for a minute. Look, look at the next few verses. Verses 8 through 12, we, we find this laid out for us. He it is, God it is, who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast. Who is in your midst, O Egypt? He sent your signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and did what? He killed many kings. No, that king just died in battle. No, that king didn't see the assassin's blade coming. No, that king wasn't smart enough to have a a, a better taste tester to keep him from being poisoned. No, that guy just caught a disease. No. God is the one who gives life and who takes it. And he says, when you see a ruler... Die. It's because God has taken his life. And he starts to name some. He says, you know the story. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of the Canaanites. I mean, you all know that it's your ancestors who, who actually took their swords into battle, and their swords into cities and killed them. No, who killed those kings? God killed those kings. It was his order. It was the victory that came by his command. And what did he do with the land those kings thought they ruled? He gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people. Just think about what that means. God is sovereign over boundaries and borders, over rulers and thrones, over courts and justices, over governors and princes, over life and death, over land and buildings. He says, you're not where you are by accident. You are where you are because God is who he is. You have what you have because God is who he is. You're in the situation and under the authorities and and in the circumstances that you are because he is who he is. I have to ask. Do we believe that? Or we always find an scapegoat. I didn't get what I wanted because that waitress didn't give me the discount she promised, right? She messed me up. I was in an accident because that guy wasn't looking. He was on his cell phone and he shouldn't have been. You have what you have. You're where you are. You're in the circumstances you're in. 
Because God is God. That is what the psalmist is saying. The Lord is the source. He's the sovereign. He's supreme. He's self-sufficient, self-governing, superintends over the weather. He strikes down and sets up and situates as he pleases. But notice number seven. The Lord is steadfast now and throughout all the ages. In verse 13, we read this. Your name, O Lord, endures for a while. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. He's not simply the God of this age or of this time or this moment or this situation. He is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God of Gods forever. And I wonder. Is that how we think about him? He's the source, he's the sovereign, he's supreme, he's self-sufficient, he's self-governing, he superintends, he strikes down, he sets up, he situates, he's steadfast. And number eight, the Lord is sympathetic. He's sympathetic toward his servants. The fact of the matter is, I don't know about you, but I hear all of these descriptions that he's sovereign over weather and all the rest, and there's something in me that wants to go, then why would he even think about me? He's got a whole lot more to worry about than where I'm going to sit next Sunday. Or whether or not my faucet's leaking. Or who my friend group is, or, 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 or. Think about all the things that you and I are going through. And, and we can think, this God, I mean, this amazing God, he's got a whole lot more to worry about than what's going on in my life. But listen to how the psalmist brings all of this down so that we see and hear the heart of God for his own. And we see this in verse 14. Notice the language, for the Lord will vindicate his people. And have compassion on his servants. He's not saying that God is distracted by all this other sovereign stuff he's doing. As if somehow he is limited in his capability. He doesn't have enough faculty or bandwidth in order to, to think and to do all that needs to be done in your life and in mine. I don't know about you. But it's easy to think, yes, I'll trust that God is sovereign over all that stuff, but I just feel like he missed it in my situation. Somehow he just overlooked what we're going through. He didn't see fit to bless us while he blesses everybody else, right? Like, my, my heart can go there. Everybody else has a praise to share, but man, if you know all that's going on in my life right now, I don't have anything to praise him for. Really? You have no idea what he's doing for you right now. 
You have no idea all the plans that he has for you and all of the ways that he's working the molecules of this earth and this creation and in the hearts of people to work all things together for the good of his own and the glory of his name. You don't know the plans he's working. But you and I sit back and think because we can only see this much, that must be all God can see too. Really? Oh, my friends, I want you to hear the fact that your God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And that includes exactly how he's leading you right now. Where he's leading you. What he's doing with you. What he is giving or withholding from you. He is having compassion for you. You haven't seen the end of this road. I haven't seen the end of this road. And I don't know what is around every bend in the road ahead of us. And I don't know what we will marvel at in a few weeks or months or years or maybe in eternity as we look back and we say, wow, that's what he was doing? But I'm really concerned that we might be a people who are willing to acknowledge maybe someday I'll be able to rejoice, but we're going to grumble the whole way through it. We're going to grouse the whole way through it. We're going to be angry and bitter, and we're going to talk, and we're going to say things. Well, could, I, could I challenge us now to be a people who in the midst trust Him and praise Him For ends we have yet to see. For glories we have yet to experience. For the good we have yet to taste. We praise God because he is God. Not because I've seen all the good he has to give yet. We praise him for who he is. Not just what he gives. And I want to challenge us. Because I think there's something in our hearts that wants to reserve the right to be angry. To be upset. To even be unbelieving until God proves himself to me this time. Can I ask you a question? How many times has he proven proven himself to you before? You can't. You can't count. But you think this time he messed up? This time he forgot you? You see how forgetful we become. I love the fact that the psalmist, as he speaks of kings and of battles and of captivity and of struggles and of wind and of storms and of lightnings and of all the things that he names in this text, he says, okay, you want to name a situation you think your God's not sovereign over. He basically walks through a list and he says, no, you're wrong. He's sovereign over everything. What's the point? He's sovereign over what you're going through right now. And what I am going through right now. And he is good. And he is glorious. And he is praiseworthy. 
in the midst of the hardest of times. Because he is God. And I have to ask, do we believe that? See, these are the reasons that the psalmist gives for praising the Lord at all times. In fact, he ends the psalm with another unmistakable call for praise. He starts with it and he ends with it. Look at verses 19 to 21. What's he do at the end of the text? He says it just again and again and again. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Six times, in various forms, he says it to all these different groups. And if you're not in one of the named groups, he just says, oh, are you among those who say you fear the Lord? Okay, then bless him. How easy is it to curse him or to question him? Or to be confused about him? Or to forget him? As soon as things get hard. And friends, I want to sound the call of the psalmist tonight. That as we go to prayer in a few moments, let's go to prayer tonight with a joy and with a confidence in our hearts and with praise on our lips. For we serve the one who makes the clouds rise at the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses, who does all that the psalmist just told us he did. So... You may not have seen the end of this road yet, and I have not either. But do you have to see the end of a thing before you're willing to praise God for who he is? Do you and I really think we have the right to reserve our praise until we see if he'll prove himself yet again? The psalmist is saying to us, I believe what I need to hear. And what we all need to hear. You who fear the Lord. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Praise the Lord. And to that end tonight, I want us to pray. That we would submit ourselves to him like that. And may his praise always. Be on our lips. Because it flows from our hearts. Let's pray together like that tonight. All right?